they finally whittled it down. And the candidates that we are left with are not perhaps the names that you would like initially think, oh, I guess this media executive seems like that'd be the logical next step. But rather people who tell you quite a bit about the sort of Bezos view on this asset and sort of what he needs. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 26th. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers, who tells me that Jeff Bezos could announce in the coming days who will become the next CEO of The Washington Post. Dylan and I also talk about the newsroom drama inside the New York Times, which issued a rare editor's note apologizing for its coverage of the hospital that was destroyed in Gaza. What does it say about the Times breaking news coverage? We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm calling today Media Thursday because I'm joined by Dylan Byers. <laughs> Dylan and I were in D.C. on Monday. Yes, we were. back and forth across the country all the time. We were together in Cambridge a few weeks before that. Hopefully both of us are settled in in Los Angeles for a little while. We have to fly across the country to spend time together, Peter. <laughs> we can't do actually, it here in L.A. because the traffic's too bad. <laughs> we were in... Uh, <laughs> Cambridge for the event we did together at the Shorenstein Center and somebody came up to us and was like do you guys like hanging out together in LA it's like nope <laughs> so yeah we had to go to Cambridge to get a cocktail together I have to say and I know, I know some time has passed but the event on Monday that you did with Ron Klain was really fantastic and felt like uh First of all, very impressed with your moderation skills. And secondly, felt like a, it felt, I don't know, it felt like a moment for us. You know, I feel like two years in, I'm still like, there's still these sort of landmark moments where you realize that like, we're, we're actually a legitimate media company sitting, <laughs> sitting on the roof of the Hay Adams overlooking the White House at sunset, talking to the former chief of staff. Uh, it was a pretty great event. Um, it was a really cool event. Also, I hadn't been to the top of the Hay Adams before. We got there to set up for this event on Monday. Uh, it looks out right over the White House back toward the Washington Monument. And I was like, why is that image seared in my brain? And like, is it from like Veep or House of Cards or something? And my friend Michelle Giacconi was there who was at NBC and Meet the Press for a long time before CNN and the Washington Post. And she said that was the location, like the background shot for whenever Tom Brokaw would come down to DC and like do a big day with Tim Russert, like an election day or something like that. And like, I grew up watching NBC news and like, I was realizing that Vista was drilled into my brain from my youth. So yes. thank you, Michelle, yes. for pointing that out to me. Um, <laughs> apparently too. Dylan, according to your latest piece for puck, there was another competing event on Monday. I, know. Uh, I can't believe anyone <laughs> would ditch us to go hang out with Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez at their Calorama mansion. Uh, they had a <laughs> 150 guests or so over for, according to you, cocktails, past canapes, and a bunch of Washington Posties were there along with members of the uh, International Women's Media Foundation, which is a really cool group, actually. Andrea Mitchell's there, Nora O'Donnell were there, Patty Stonecipher was there. 
But the reason you mentioned this, Dylan, is because Bezos is in Washington a lot lately, it sounds like, because he's come down to two finalists to take over as CEO of the Washington Post. You identified these these finalists, you know, before some other reporters did. Who are they? Just remind our audience who might take over the Washington Post. Sure. Um, we're down to two candidates now, and this is after like a, a months long search, not just by Patty Stonecipher, the interim CEO, but also uh, the Suturman executive search firm. And it is one of these things that is sort of, you know, they flood the zone and they, and not Patty, but at least Suturman sort of talks to all of these people and they finally whittled it down. And the candidates that we are left with are not perhaps the names that you would like initially think, oh, I guess this media executive seems like that'd be the logical next step. But rather people who tell you quite a bit about the sort of Bezos view on this asset and sort of what he needs. One is Josh Steiner, mm-hmm. uh, who is a investor, uh, worked in the Clinton Treasury for a while, uh, has sort of funny anecdote there from the Whitewater hearings that we don't have time to go into, but I encourage everyone to look it up, and has basically become like a longtime Bloomberg Lieutenant, and I mean Michael mm-hmm. Bloomberg Lieutenant as well as Bloomberg LP Lieutenant. The other one you have is a more traditional choice in that he was a journalist. His name's Will Lewis, journalist for a long time, British journalist, and then became a sort of media executive and for about five or six years was the uh, publisher of Dow Jones and the CEO of the Wall Street Journal and who is a longtime Murdoch Lieutenant. Mm. And so... You've got, in a way, you've got two different, like one guy kind of seems like sort of like Fred Ryan 2.0 in that he's got this like government experience, but he's also, you know, a little bit more, I think, globally minded insofar as he has like the financial experience, the Bloomberg experience. And then the other one is actually more of a journalist by trade, but also someone who's operated in the sort of like upper echelons of like the high class media executive set. And I think the, the thing that these two actually have in common, which I think is what tells you so much about what Jeff Bezos might be looking for, why he valued Fred Ryan for a time, is both of these guys have spent a lot of time working in the service of these sort of ultra-high net worth individuals, Bloomberg, Murdoch, and that part of this job, which I don't think I fully appreciated until I became sort of was like went into the weeds of the CEO search, is that part of this job is not just managing the paper, but also managing up to someone of the Bezos caliber who has a thousand things on his plate, is so much more occupied with running, like, obviously the Amazon empire, trying to go to space, fighting climate change, Mm -hmm. enjoying life on the yacht, that he actually (laughs) needs someone who is like, A, just like, do, do this in a responsible way, run this like financially responsibly, please don't lose me $100 million a year. Certainly I can afford it, but that's not the model I want to be setting for my, you know, sort of trophy media asset. And secondly, someone who's just sort of like operates in that world or at least adjacent to that, the world that he's in and sort of gets it. And that is perhaps not what those of us, you know, down here on the ground floor of media would sort of think you would want for this position, but it turns out that maybe that is exactly the kind of person that a guy like Jeff Bezos needs for this position. So two questions related as a follow-up here. I'm getting the impression from you that Bezos does kind of want to be, generally speaking, like hands-off, right? Not necessarily getting involved in like certainly day-to-day news coverage, but also 
Q4 revenue decks or whatever. Yes. And then secondly, related to that, like, what do you think as he heads into this decision? And according to your reporting, he'll make this announcement in the coming days. Like, what do you think he's asking each of them in these interviews? That's a really good question. I mean, first of all, to your first sort of question is like, what does Bezos want and and what is his personal level of involvement? I, I don't want to suggest in any way, shape or form when I talk about all the other things that are on his plate that he isn't excited about the idea of the post being successful or that he doesn't like owning the post. I think he does. I think he feels good about this. And I think in an ideal world, he like looks back on those sort of turbocharged years of like the first Trump administration and Marty Baron at the helm. Mm-hmm. And when he, he could go out there on stage and say things like, yeah, we're going to become the new paper of record. And, you know, gets really excited about deciding what the slogan for the paper is going to be. Democracy dies in darkness. Like, <laughs> I think that he would actually genuinely like to go back to those days. It just so happens that by virtue of being a $150 billion man who revolutionized the way we consume everything, that he's just really, really busy. And that the (laughs) media asset that he bought for $250 million is not terribly high on the priority list. And that's okay. It, It doesn't necessarily need to be. But you do therefore run into this situation where like, you will never see in my copy me writing like, oh my God, A.G. Salzberger is like at New York Times headquarters, right? Because... That he lives in New York and like yeah. that's where he should be. But for Bezos, when he comes to DC, it is a really big fucking deal because the leadership of the Washington Post, it's not like the Salzburgers or the Grams who owned the post before Bezos did. The executive leadership, uh, you know, there's certainly the CEO gets to talk to Bezos on a regular basis, mm-hmm. but the rest of the executive leadership or certainly the editorial leadership maybe gets to be in the same room with this guy two to three times a year, Hmm. right? So they are constantly, especially in the wake of Fred Ryan's, the sort of post-Trump years when things got bad and they started losing money and losing subscribers and losing talent, they were just like waiting and looking for a sign of life from this guy who meanwhile was like either somewhere in space or somewhere in the Mediterranean. And that's just a different sort of relationship to have to the owner of a newspaper. And that's why he needs a CEO who can basically handle this for him. And perhaps in a best case scenario, inspire the rank and file and and at least hire a new editorial leader or editorial leadership or maybe convince Sally Busby to sort of like take a different tack Mm -hmm. that sort of makes it feel a little bit more of that like magic and energy that it had five or six years years ago so what is he asking these candidates i don't know i you know he had all of the finalists there were at one point there were like five or six finalists Mm -hmm. he had them all submit these six page memos and in those memos he said the questions i I believe sort of included things like what is the long-term plan right like where what what are you going to be proud of when you look back on your time at the post like 10 years from now right Mm -hmm. so I think that telegraphs two things. One is that Bezos certainly isn't like, he's not going to offload the post. I think he's invested for a while. He's certainly, why not? Uh, it's a rounding error on, on his overall balance sheet. And then two, I think he's actually like, let's not forget this is a guy who's building like a 10,000 year clock in the desert. Like he's playing the long game, right? So he wants to know, he's not worried about like, you know, can the post be competitive with the times in 2024? He wants to know like, 
are we setting the post up for long-term success? And given the deficit that it's operating at in this sort of post-Trump era, the first step on that path is not some you know revolutionary move. It's just get to profitability. Let's just manage the PL. Mm. And that might not be terribly sexy or exciting for the rank and file, but it is at least an indicator of a long-term investment that I think will ultimately be at least marginally beneficial for the paper. All right, Dylan, I'm going to take a quick break and come back and ask you about some drama inside the New York Times over their coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Welcome back, everybody, to The Powers That Be. I'm joined by Dylan Byers. Let's talk, Dylan, about the main rival for the Washington Post, permanent rival, permanently ahead in in terms of audience and revenue at this point, uh, the New York Times. They stepped in it, to put it mildly, about a week ago when 10 days after the terror attack in Israel by Hamas, uh, a hospital in Gaza City was bombed, hit by a missile, something happened. The New York Times basically blasted a large headline across their website attributing the hospital explosion which at first they said killed hundreds to Palestinian officials the IDF strongly pushed back on that uh, multiple intelligence reports from a variety of countries basically sided with Israel and said that a missile was basically off course from Islamic Jihad that's what blew up the hospital anyway so New York Times, and, and this is what one of their first big mistakes of the Joe Kahn era, published an editor's note on October 23rd saying that they relied too much on Palestinian officials. In this case, that would be relying on Hamas, <laughs> which you know isn't exactly to be trusted. And according to the New York Times editor's note, quote, the report left readers with an incorrect impression about what was known and how credible the account was. Now, a few days later, Charlotte Klein, who writes for Vanity Fair, unearthed some Slack messages from inside the New York Times where, predictably, I mean, this isn't a scandal uh, necessarily, editors and reporters at the New York Times in Slack in their breaking news coverage were debating uh, whether or not to hedge this story a bit more than they ultimately did. And Uh, According to Klein's reporting, senior editors appeared to have dismissed suggestions from an international editor, along with a junior reporter stationed in Israel, that the paper hedge its framing of the events. Basically, she's saying senior editors at the Times overruled one international editor and one reporter in Israel by just going with the headline that caused all this drama. That's a big windup, Dylan, but this is a complicated story. Are you hearing uh, any... Any grousing inside the Times about this? I mean, it, it does feel oh. like a, a big mistake on their part. It's hu- It's a huge mistake. And look, they weren't the only ones to make it, right? A lot of news organizations make the same mistake. It is sort of telling about how much the New York Times occupies are thinking that they're they're. The, I mean, they also just sort of fucked up and left the headline on uh, for way too long. But the fact that like they're the ones who are catching the heat for this, and rightfully so, is that like they are sort of the gold standard now. And it was ten years ago when every every news organization blew the um, Supreme Court healthcare ruling. CNN's stature was a little bit higher, and they were the ones who took the heat for that, right? 
I think I sort of I have two takeaways here. One is the grousing that you mention. It is just so the New York Times in this day and age to have like their fuck up become this thing that just sort of like bleeds like for days and days and days Mm -hmm. and becomes this like story within, you know, like Slack messages reminiscent of the infamous decision around the Tom Cotton op-ed to get rid of the opinion editor. Like it's so Timesian to sort of take this and then like basically turn a, a, granted a big fuck up, but kind of turn it into like a week long story with like a big apology and then subsequent apology, the Slack messages come out and everyone's sort of debating it. And then you go to the Times website and they sort of have to, they're probably covering the claims by various governments and intelligence agencies about what happened here a little more aggressively because they feel the need to like really address what happened here because they know that they screwed up. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of like, okay, it was bad and they should acknowledge it and they should take heat for it. At the same time, their ability to sort of turn it into something bigger by by continuing to step on themselves is sort of funny. You know, Mark Thompson, the new CEO of CNN, has sort of has this line that he's been telling people who are still dealing with like the PTSD of the Chris Licht years, like, let's not be too scared of our own shadow. Let's not worry too much mm-hmm. about like, you know, these sort of questions about correct journalistic practice. Like, let's just go out there and do our jobs. And in a way, like we've the New York Times done and been through it. Anyway, that that's one small thing. People can disagree with me on that. The bigger thing that I sort of noticed here is this happened on the live blog that the New York Times does whenever yeah. it's like, you know, they break into breaking news coverage and they throw up these live blogs, which I find to be incredibly useful, a great way to follow, whether it's I find them Hamas. to be useful, but also like kind of difficult to navigate, actually. Um, yeah. Or, well, or how to separate well, it from like what their comprehensive reporting is. And again, I say that as somebody yes. who like came up in the like, quote unquote, blogosphere. I do find it confusing sometimes. Yes. Well, so here's what's so interesting to sort of paraphrase the famous quote about Netflix and HBO. I think we are at a moment right now when, and it's sort of fitting that Mark Thompson was once the CEO of the New York Times, now he's the CEO of CNN. I think we're at a moment right now where the New York Times is trying to become CNN before CNN can become the New York Times. And what I mean by that is that mm. you've got, CNN does has one huge advantage over the New York Times, which is video, live video, live breaking news video from the ground. And, and they are showcasing that strength right now as we speak. And the New York Times is trying to base with the, with this live blog thing that they do during major breaking news events. They are trying to basically say, we can compete in this territory. And if you want to follow along, we will give you up to the minute news and we will provide like some video, you know, some one and a half minute videos. And we're going to try and become the home for breaking news coverage for people who by and large, like don't aren't really spending a lot of time on television. And we're going to try and do that before Mark Thompson can like revolutionize CNN digital and turn it into to an actual like Times competitor. Hmm. And the thing that that the New York Times suffers from in that effort, certainly not the reporting, which I think is magnificent, certainly not the the user experience, which which I like, the issue is latency. And there is a latency that they have that TV doesn't have because television is live and it's constantly going and it's and it's on the ground in, in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And 
their last update happened 17 minutes ago. And then they refresh it with a paragraph and that sits there for three minutes and then they refresh it with something else. Right. And in, in their drive to compete here, there is a premium being put on speed mm-hmm. before accuracy. I, I think they're fighting very hard for accuracy, but there's a premium being put here on speed that is reminiscent of the worst instincts of cable news. And I think yes. that's what happened here. I think that they were so eager to get, you know, like have the the latest news, and this was a very big development in the war, that they got out over their skis a little bit. And that is a mentality of 2023, and let's just say like the 21st century perhaps, that is very different from the mentality we, we historically associate with the New York Times. And it's one that I'm sure they are taking a lot of steps to to sort of augment as, as they think about how to be thought more of as a breaking news organization in that in that live blog sense. I'm glad you mentioned the TV comparison because I mentioned that to John the other day when we talked about this on Media Monday, which is when I was at CNN, when you were at CNN, is is the same. If a story came across the wires that wasn't CNN's original reporting it would be very quickly rushed up and thrown on a banner, um, you know, after some decision-making. Do we have this is a common phrase that goes around these organizations, which is deeply annoying to reporters. Yes. Who is we? Yes. No, we do not have why this. Do, why, this is why we're yeah, chasing We're it. often like, why, um, why don't we have this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who is we? Uh, <laughs> you would throw up a banner on the lower third uh, of the screen and it would say something like, you know, Obama to endorse same-sex marriage in speech, colon, AP, right? They would tribute to another news right. service. Right. And so when I saw this New York Times headline, my first thought was to go back to that experience in a TV newsroom, which is rushing to get something out there. And then something that doesn't necessarily work in the social media era is these senior editors at the New York Times thought it was enough to attribute to Palestinian sources, assuming the reader would know that attribution means we aren't saying this. We're just attributing it in real time to a source over here. And that doesn't work in a situation like this, where the temperature is so hot on both sides of the conflict, where anyone can take something out of context on the internet. Look, readers aren't as sophisticated as to know the difference between Palestinian Health Authority and the fact that the Palestinian Health Authority is run by Hamas, which has an interest in lying or exaggerating, right? Like there's just all these things where they put a lot of trust in the audience, but there are bad actors all over the internet. There are people who don't know the distinctions that the New York Times newsroom does, and that really got them into trouble in my mind. 100% agree. And all I would add is that the Times and everyone should have known better because guess what every news organization, most notably the Times, has spent the last decade, you know, eight years doing in terms of statements with Trump. There's There's been a running debate for years about how to characterize false statements or statements from unreliable sources. And at some point, like post, I don't know, November 2016, 
people sort of came to the conclusion that you couldn't just like publish whatever Trump was saying right. and then write comma Trump says <laughs> that you had to do a better job like contextualizing it. And certainly when you're talking about a war in the Middle East where like you point out most people like don't know that the Palestinian health ministry or the Gazan health ministry is like effectively run by Hamas like that would be useful information. And I think what's so great about the Slack messages that Charlotte unearthed is like yeah, like they were aware, like there were editors and people who were saying like, slow down, like that we, we need to think twice about this. And the incentive that went out was speed. Dylan, thanks for your reporting, buddy. Uh, I'll talk soon. All right, man. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.